Homer and the Hall of Famer, I needed to talk college basketball. I need to know more. And the guy I go to is Jay Billis. Yeah, he's with ESPN, but if you don't know who Jay Billis is, then you don't even know college basketball. Jay, good afternoon. Homer, how you doing? I am living the dream, and I want to know who's the best team in the country. That's where I start. You would know. Is there a best team? Yeah, I think it's Purdue. Uh, Purdue has everything. Uh, they, they shoot a, a really high percentage, both from two and three. They've got tremendous size with Zach Eady and Travion Williams. Uh, they've got explosive athleticism with Jaden Ivey, who's a lottery pick. Uh, and they really do check every box as far as personnel and ability level. I think they defend well. You know, they've lost a couple games. They got beat at Rutgers when Ron Harper Jr. made a 60-footer at the buzzer. Otherwise, they win that game. And, uh, and Wisconsin beat them. But Wisconsin's pretty good, and they've gotten much better uh, over the last month or so. So, you know, look, we're going to have a rotating number one because we react. We, at times, overreact to losses. Oh, this team lost. Drop them five spots. When, when you know the teams that are ahead of them in the rankings, they're, they're, they're not better. Um, but if I had to pick a best team, we don't have teams like last year, Homer, where you had, you know, Gonzaga and Baylor were head and shoulders above the crowd and proved it. Um, but, uh, but I think, I think you do have, a maybe half a dozen teams that can claim, uh, to be, you know, at, at the level of the best team, but they're not, they're not head and shoulders. But I, I, if I had to pick one team that I think is the best, it's Purdue. Well, then I guess I'm wrong already, because when I saw Gonzaga, I said, they're going to win the title. Uh, everybody else is playing for second. Clearly, you don't agree, or I oversold. No, I'm, it's not that I don't agree. I mean, Gonzaga's right there. Um, but they're know, not they, that they, good. No, I, I think Purdue's better. Okay. I, it's not to say that they're not that good, but I think Purdue's a little bit better. And, you know, Gonzaga's probably the best offensive team. They're a little bit different this year because they, you know, last year they played Corey Kispert as a four, so they could really spread the floor and pass and cut. They're still the same in that regard. They still pass and cut really well, but they're not as dangerous of a perimeter shooting team as they were last year. And they had Jalen Suggs, who was a, you know, top five pick uh, in the draft. Uh, And this year they brought in Chet Holmgren, who actually played in high school with Jalen Suggs. That's a pretty good high school team. Um, and he's, you know, he's like seven, two super skilled. He can stretch the floor a little bit, but not like Kispert could. So they're a little bit different, but, uh, but they're still legit. I mean, they're still as good, you know, as good or almost as good as anybody, but, but I would favor Purdue just a bit. Talking college hoops with Jay Billis. All right. To Marquette. I assume right now in my learning, but limited knowledge of Shaka Smart, he's either studying basketball or reading a book. And I'm not sure of which it is. You know, yeah, it, go ahead. Well, I told you, I told you he is, you know, uh, I think when he was hired, you and I spoke yep. uh, on your show and you know, I told you like there, there's nobody, you know, I'd rather have my son play for than, than Shaka Smart. Um, he is uh, not only a great coach and, and, and I don't use the word great lightly. He's a great coach, um, but he's an even better person. And so he mentors those, uh, those players. Um, he has a great culture and, uh, he's just got a fabulous energy about him. And, uh, you know, he makes you feel better when you're around him and it doesn't mean he doesn't hold players accountable or anything like that. You know, I think he, he exemplifies, you know, the principle that a coach can be demanding without being demeaning. 
uh, and and you know that that's always impressed me about Shaka, and he's he's very thoughtful uh, and not thoughtful in any sense. Thank you notes and birthday cards, but but thoughtful when he thinks things through, and uh, and he is a, a voracious reader. Uh, I always have to be on my toes whenever I see him. He'll say, "What have you read lately?" And I'm like, "You know, uh, magazine." Uh, so I gotta. I always have to step up my game. Round two with Jay Billis. Fabulous energy is next. Villanova's tomorrow. Homer in the Hall of Famer with Jay Billis. I love the comment, fabulous energy. That's a great thing to say about anybody, but that fits him. That's that's just perfect. Well, I mean, when you when you go to practice, when you're a player and you go to practice, you don't want to go to practice and feel like you're you know you're doing military drills, and uh, uh, you know it's not boot camp. And so they're a very high energy team and a high-energy program. So everything they do, they do with enthusiasm, and it's positive energy. Um, you know, his players, in my view, going back to VCU and and uh, in Texas and now Marquette, you know, he, he puts his players in a positive position about they're not afraid to make a mistake. And and that's a big deal because, you know, you, you do have a lot of players that, that they, they, they become sort of paralyzed by fear of making a mistake. And and so there's a difference between a, a mistake of commission and a mistake of omission. Like he'll jump on that. You know, you, you make a mistake because you omitted to do something you were supposed to do. He'll jump on that. But you make a mistake trying to do something positive. You know, he wants to correct it. But he doesn't. He also believes in in appropriate risk taking. Like you're not going to be a good team unless you take risks and 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 ball out. And uh, and he allows his uh, he encourages his players to do that. So it's a really positive atmosphere that way. I'm still learning Shaka Smart basketball. I don't know what it is. Everybody shoots three. It's kind of up tempo. Play. How do you? What do you watch? I mean, he's given me the stats, and um, they have an amazing ability. It doesn't matter how far they're behind; they're never bothered. They can come back, and maybe this group. But how do how do Shaka Smart teams win? Originally at VCU, it was that defense, and he does it some. This group doesn't necessarily do it that well. He'll he'll change and go away from stuff if it doesn't work. But what is his style of basketball? Well, it, it's changed, and it changes based upon personnel and the and the league they're in. So when he was at VCU, they ran that havoc system, which was up tempo, full court pressure, make you uncomfortable, force turnovers, score off your defense. Um, that that works in the Atlantic 10. It is not as easy as it sounds to put in when you're in the Big 12 or the Big East. You know, the Big East is more of a smash-mouth um, league. And this year, Homer, when when officials are allowing way more physical play, I mean, you're, you know, the, you see teams grabbing cutters and arm bars on ball handlers, things that, were, that are obvious fouls are not being called. And so the, the Big East has become more of a half-court game. You have teams that, that, that they get out in transition, but they're not. You don't see a bunch of pressing teams in that league because they, they, you, know, you can get punished for doing that, too. You, know, you put full-court pressure on, you have the opportunity to get a turnover, but you also give the other team an opportunity to play ahead of your defense if they can, they can you know, uh, attack it. And uh, uh, so you have, to, you have to be mindful of that. And I think Shaka makes really good decisions based upon – you know, one, his personnel, and I don't think they're necessarily a pressing team. They can put pressure on you, but I don't think they're going to be pressing uh, in order to, to win games. Um, you know, the one thing that, that I think when I, when I watch Marquette play, 
the one challenge they have is they're not a, a natural rebounding team. That's something they're really going to have to to work on. <laughs> I'm going to write that down. That is that is nicely said. <laughs> not a natural rebounding team. Yeah. Well, some teams are. I mean, yes. some teams have guys that can go get the ball. Yeah. And uh, and and they don't have that. They're a little bit smaller. Um, so rebounding is a challenge for them. Yep. Not only keeping opponents off the offensive glass, but getting offensive rebound opportunities themselves. So it, it requires you to, to manufacture some things in other areas. You said a great coach, not just addressing him, but upon what do you look at someone and say, there's a great coach? You know, it's a, it's a full package thing. So all the, the personal attributes that we talked about with Shaka, sort of the energy, the thoughtful uh, approach to things, uh, you know, he's, a, he's a, an analytics guy, but not uh, to the exclusion of, of other important factors. But he's technically sound. There, there's nothing uh, that he can't teach. And, and he also is able to make great adjustments. Um, he's a fabulous recruiter, not because uh, he's got some magic formula, uh, uh, you know, that, that he can just charm the hell out of people, but he, he does charm you because he, um, he gets to know players and their families and, and their situations, and he brings them in and he, he coaches and mentors the whole person, not just the player. So, um, you know, and I think he recruits the person and the player, uh, and I think that shows up in the, the caliber of person he has, and the, the caliber of player. Um, so, you know, look, the results, ultimately coaches get judged upon wins and losses. But when he was at Texas, I mean, I, I thought he built a fantastic culture. Um, that's a tough place. And, uh, and I thought he did a great job. He brought in a bunch of really good players. Um, it can be difficult when you have, like Texas has not traditionally been one of those places where you bring in, a bunch of lottery talent, but when he did bring in lottery picks, the problem was he didn't have them for very long, and mm-hmm. those can be tough to replace. Um, you know, at Duke or Kentucky, you know, they just bring in a whole bunch of them, and uh, so they can they can absorb it a little bit better. When you only have one or two, uh, and you get one every year, you know, it, it becomes a rotating cycle, and sometimes that can be difficult. Talking with Jay Billis, last up, Villanova, because that's the next challenge for Marquette at Villanova. And every year in the Big East, I say, well, it's Villanova and everybody else. And that seems to have worked. Um, Jay Wright was good. I remember when he couldn't get past the first weekend at the NCAA, and he's certainly at the top of the coaches in the country now, right? Oh, yeah. Um, And talking about culture, like Jay Wright, I think, has the best culture in in the game. Uh, And it's been for a, a period of years, maybe even a decade now. So it's no it's no accident that his teams, when their personnel changes, uh, they play the same. Uh, and he's got a great point guard that came back for another year. He's got two guys that came back for that additional COVID year that, that normally would have been graduated in uh, Jermaine Samuels and Colin Gillespie. And Gillespie is one of the top five point guards in the country. You know, he's not going to wow you with, uh, hey, he averages eight assists per game because he doesn't. But uh, there's not a better floor general in the country. And when you watch Villanova play, um, you know, they, they really do space the floor really well. And they do these things, you know, uh, Jay Wright calls them back downs, where, it, where they'll get an individual matchup and they'll just back you down in the post. I want to ask drive. you about that. Nobody else does that. I see Gillespie do it. And it's like. It's I don't know. It's like playing one on one. It's like there's nobody else on the floor, and they do it and do it and do it. And Gillespie's, you know, not that tall finishes. And I guess if you double, then you, they throw it out to the open person. 
I don't, do you see any other team doing the way they – I mean, they do it literally with every player on the floor, right? They, they do it better than, than most any other team. A lot of other teams do it. They don't do it quite as well. It's, it's really been a signature thing for Villanova. I'm not sure it started with Jalen Brunson, but he was the one that I think you know any observer, whether they're basketball savvy or not, could spot it. Um, but, but Gillespie an, will spend even more time than I think he ever did. Gillespie will no, have, not no. not more than Brunson. Okay. not more than right. Brunson. But yeah, yeah but, but but that's a fair point. I mean, he does it a lot, and but they all do it. You know, whether it's Justin Moore, he, you know, all of them do it. Jermaine, I guess Daniels, I'm just surprised that he can do it because he did. he's strong. Yes, um, but 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 you know, your point about it's individual. It's really not because they they cut off that stuff and space off of it. So, um, you know, and they, they do a great job whenever they drive. They come to a two-foot jump stop, and they pivot, and they can angle around you to get a shot, or they can spray it and get it out to another, another player who has spaced the floor who either has a jump shot opportunity or can drive a closeout. So it, it, it is really difficult to guard, and they do it for the whole shot clock. Like, they're not taking their yeah. first necessarily their first shot, so they wear defenses down. And they're not a fast-paced team. You know, you think of sometimes you think about Villanova, and you start thinking about fast break and high tempo. They, they don't play that way. They, they've got one of the slowest tempos in the country. Um, but uh, they're they're so they're skilled at every position. They don't have a lot of size. That's the one thing that is a little bit different. Like their biggest player is probably Eric Dixon, who's he couldn't be more than six eight. Samuel's about six seven, six six, whatever. Um, so when they get against teams like Purdue or, or teams like that, that's where they can have some problems. Um, but they're really hard to hard to beat. And, and one thing you cannot do against Villanova, you can't foul them because they they make all their free throws. Uh, they've got to be. Uh, you know, like, I don't know where they rank um, in in free throw shooting, but you know they got to be among the best free throw shooting teams in the country. You don't see many teams. Last time I checked, they're shooting over eighty percent from the line as a team. And you know one guy does that, and you're like, hey, what a great free throw shooter. Their whole team does it. So uh, you you cannot put them at the free throw line because it'll swear you out. Round two with Jay Billis. Fabulous Energy is next. I just, I really remember Gillespie. I know it was first year. I, I, I thought he was nothing. It was like, I would have thought he was a walk-on, and, and he has developed. I don't know if, if you say that about Jay Wright. Does he develop players really well? He also recruits really well. Gillespie just stands out to me as one of the, the greatest stories I ever well, he was a really good high school player. Okay. Um, you know, he's a Philly kid. His, his dad's a, a cop. And, um, you know, so he's always been a tough competitor. He, you know, he's one of those guys. I don't know what sports he played in high school or, or growing up, but he's one of those guys like Kelvin Sampson was, you know, the coach at Houston when he was in high school. He's always in a leadership position. So he was the point guard, quarterback, catcher, right. you know, did everything leadership-wise. And that's kind of what Gillespie does. And uh, you know, he shoots over 40% from three, and, and uh, he's an error-free player. Um, you know, it's hard to get the ball away from him. He's strong. I mean, he's a grown man out there, and, uh, uh, and, and they have a lot of those guys. They're all kind of substantial. You know, I wouldn't say they're, they're super athletic. I mean, Justin Moore's athletic, and uh, Brandon Slater's improved a lot. He's big, long, and athletic, but, but they're not, they're not going to beat you with their super athleticism. They beat you with their, their strong. Uh, they, they all can handle and pass. Uh, they all can back you down the post and make decisions and, uh, and they're, they're tough defensively. They, they make it difficult on you to get a shot, a clean look. Um, I don't think they're, you know, 
a top five team, mm-hmm. although their numbers probably suggest they are. But uh, but there are very few teams out there they cannot beat. I mean, I saw them lose in overtime to UCLA. I think it was overtime. Uh, they lost at UCLA. Uh, I think Purdue hit them pretty hard. But outside of that, um, they they've been pretty darn pretty darn effective. And uh, oh, the other team that beat the hell out of them was Baylor. Um, but but Baylor, you know, it was at Baylor, and one of those things where you know Jay Wright probably regrets. You know, some people say, why did you schedule that game? But but you know, he's got an older team, puts them in that spot. But they'll be better off for it in the long run, I think. couple of quick things. You mentioned the officiating, way more physical play there, allowing anything else that you've noticed about the game from that standpoint. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, a little bit of history on this. Um, you know, college basketball five, it started about 10 years ago, but, but uh, the, the movement toward it, the idea of getting more toward freedom of movement. Like, we had hit a point where scoring was at an all-time low, an all-time low. And that was with, uh, you know, a 30-second shot clock and the three-point shot. And you're going, wait a minute. So I was actually, I'm actually on one of the committees that dealt with this, the NCAA committee. It's called the Competition Committee. And it was back in the day, it was run by Jim Delaney, the former uh, commissioner of the Big Ten. And we actually got film of, of past years going all the way back to the 19, 1960s. And we looked at film of the game. And, you know, for some of your older listeners like me, um, you know, you might think of the 1976 Indiana team and say, well, oh, man, Bob Knight's team, what a tough, gritty bunch of defenders. And they were. But you'd watch film of them playing, and they weren't within five feet of anybody. And you couldn't, you couldn't bump cutters back then. You couldn't um, have your hands all over people. You couldn't hand check. And so the committee I was on made recommendations on freedom of movement to the rules committee. A lot of things got put through, not necessarily for new rules, but to enforce rules on the book. You couldn't have an arm bar on a a, uh, two hands on the ball handler, automatic foul. You couldn't put an arm bar on a, uh, on a ball handler or a cutter. Uh, Couldn't grab people, stuff like that. Because if you can grab a cutter, uh, you know, you got a great shooter, um, and and if he's coming off a screen, if I grab him or or bump him off his path, I can disrupt an entire offensive set. And years ago, those were fouls. And people would say, like the old Big East, well, it's not more physical now than it was in the old Big East back when Georgetown, Patrick Ewing. Actually, it was far less physical back then. So if you go back and look at those games, the reason people think it was physical was there were no flagrant fouls back then. So when somebody got fouled, they got laid out. And that was the, the way the way they coached. It says, hey, man, no layup. Somebody goes to the bucket, put them in the wood because it's just a foul. It's a regular foul. Well, now we've got flagrant fouls, so that's been cleaned up. But the other stuff is way more physical. It's not close. And, and Georgetown didn't lay a hand on people like you can now back in the 80s. And I would encourage people to go look at that. Go look at the 1985 title game and tell me that it's not more physical now. Um, Jeff Van Gundy, who's as astute a basketball mind as you'll find in the, in the world, we were talking the other day on a podcast, and, and he went to the Iowa State-Kansas game, and, and he raved about, man, the players played so hard, and they're so athletic, and wow, what a competitive game. But he, said, but he said, but I don't know what that was. It wasn't basketball. And he was talking about how physical it was. He goes, way more physical than the NBA and he coaches international basketball. He coaches coached U.S. teams, and he says, and it's more physical than the international game, which is very physical. And uh, and we should. That's what, those are, are kind of canary in the coal mine alarm bells. 
And I hear in practices now, I go to a lot of practices, and now that COVID is, is in a different spot, you know, I couldn't do that as much last year. But I can hear coaches teaching to fouling. So now, I mean, years ago when we started the freedom of movement thing, uh, I would hear in practice all the time, foul them with your chest. You know, arms up, body down, and foul them with your chest. They're not going to call it. And I'm hearing that again. I didn't hear it the last three years. I'm hearing it again. And I heard a coach the other day say they were talking about a double team uh, in the post saying, when you bring that double, throw your chest right into them. They will not call it. And if they do, that fouls on me. You know, that kind of thing. And, and so that's what's being taught now. We're bumping cutters again, um, uh, bumping guys off hedges on ball screens. It's ridiculous. Well, wait, and, so they listened to you for a while and then said, forget it? Doesn't make sense. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, so they're still emphasized. So you still hear the same stuff out of the supervisors. They'll all say, like, J.D. Collins is the supervisor of officials for the NCAA. And he'll say, you know, uh, freedom of movement and, you know, all this stuff and, and enforce the rules. But the officials aren't doing it. And, and I don't know what J.D. is saying publicly or privately right now. But I can tell you that, that um, you know, objective observers are looking at this going, freedom of movement, forget it. It doesn't exist. Um, we've, scoring is down. Fouls are down. Now, how is that possible? <laughs> like, fouls are down. Now, that doesn't – I should say foul calls are down. Fouling is way up. Foul <laughs> calls are down. So, you know, to use an analogy, Homer, if you were – if you wanted to reduce speeding on the highway – so you got a 65-mile-an-hour speed limit on the highway, and your goal was to reduce speeding because you see it all the time. God, people are speeding like crazy. And, I, and, again, we're not talking about calling touch fouls here, so I'm not saying give somebody a ticket for going 68 and 65. And you're giving fewer but, tickets. It's not going to work. Yeah, if, <laughs> if you're not giving tickets, people are going to speed more. And, wow. and, you know, we, we all know that feeling of driving when you're going through a speed trap going, hey, if I don't watch myself here, I'm going to get it. And you know, coaches are smart enough. They adjust so quickly. They know what works, and they know what works against them. And they watch a ton of film. They're going, hey, they're not calling this. So if they're not going to call it. Let's do it. Because it, it, it works. You gain a huge advantage. You know, if I'm a shooter coming off a screen and somebody throws an arm bar into me, if, if you're – and these guys are all strong. If, if Homer, I promise you, if I've got an arm bar back when I was actually an athlete, if I've got an arm bar into my assignment, that guy's going where I want him to go, not where he wants to go. Right. And I can disrupt – I can blow up a dribble handoff. I can blow up a ball screen through physicality. And, and it – you know, what's the point? I mean, this is a skill game. And so you'll hear coaches that, that want to play a physical brand of defense. They'll say um, – they'll say, well, well – that's unfair to the defense. Like defense is 50% of the game. And my response is always, when is that not true? Somebody's always got the ball. Somebody's always on defense. Defense is always 50% of the game, but whatever, whatever way the game is being called, you get the ball back and you you're able to score on the other end with the same rules. Like that's what basketball is. It, It shouldn't be when you go to the basket, somebody throws their chest into you while you're trying to score. And we think that's okay. Uh, it's not, and, you know, hey, block the shot, uh, strip the ball. You know, if somebody, like somebody's doing like that back down we're talking about, mm-hmm. instead of having a bumping contest, bring a double team. Right. And if you bring the double team, the guy passes out of it, and then, and then you have to scramble, and, and all. that's basketball. What we're seeing now is hockey. And it's not every game, but it's, it's, it's most of the games. 
And uh, and sometimes the the data can be a little skewed because we've got 354 Division One teams, and I don't mean this to sound um, dismissive, but you know, do I like? Uh, I had a supervisor one time tell me uh, I, I had been complaining about how long replay was taking. Like it, it's it, it's just ridiculous how long it was taking, and he was saying, "Well, the average replay time is 30 seconds," and I said, "That's because you're factoring in all these tiny little conferences that don't go to replay." Or when they go, they say, you know, it's not as big of a deal. Like, you know, we've got to cater to the top echelon of the game. And the top echelon of the game now are hockey games. And, uh, and look, people, like, I've, I did Gonzaga-BYU the other night. And Gonzaga scored over 100 points. It was a clean, beautiful game. Both teams could, could get shots and all that stuff. And they played hard defensively, but it, was a, it, it didn't have the bumping and grinding you see in some other games. You know, ESPN didn't field a bunch of phone calls saying, this is unacceptable. Who wants to watch this? You know, nobody complained last year when UCLA and Gonzaga played that 100-point game where Jalen Suggs hit that half-court shot to win it. Um, and we've got way too many of these, you know, 57, 55 games that are slugfests, and, uh, and it's unnecessary, and, and I think it's wrong. No, you're right. Um, if you're bumping, and they would call that on the defensive player, teams would adjust and realize, well, we can't play it that way because they're not letting us do that defensively. So we got to double, and they would. Right. Yeah, and they would. And that that sort of those are the things that that the game dictates. You know, you don't want you don't want shooters getting getting bumped. Like if if uh, if if you're going to the basket and I come over and I just throw my chest into you, um, I can really disrupt your shot. That's a foul. Right. You know, like you can jump straight up in the air, and if I come into you, that's contact the offense creates. You got to deal with that. But but if I throw my chest, that's a foul, and it's not getting called. And guys are, uh, I saw I saw a thing the other day. Guys driving baseline, the defender uh, lost legal guarding position, was sideways with them, and just rode him out of bounds. And they called it out of bounds. I'm going. Well, why do you think the guy stepped out of bounds? He wasn't driving that way. The guy didn't have legal guarding position. Like that's a foul, and and you're going. What do you you look at some of the officials? And this is not just one missed call here, one missed call there. This is happening all the time, and and you know I like I think the officials generally do a great job. They're doing a horrible job this year, horrible, and it's it's nationwide, and and it's it's unacceptable. And I don't understand why we don't have a better handle on this. When are they get in the committee, but, your committee, you're wrong. When are they going to bring them back? Well, but the, the the committee can you know the committee can only put the, the the rules and guidelines out and the directives. People people have to follow it. And the problem we have is all of these different conferences have their own supervisors in charge of their conferences. And then the NCAA supervisor of officials is in charge of of the whole thing, but really only in charge of the tournament. Hmm. So the only hammer the the NCAA supervisor has is, well, you know, if you don't do what I'm asking you to do, I won't select you for the tournament. But he's got to take 120 officials to to ref the tournament. Otherwise, what are they going to do? So the officials kind of know, well, geez, if I'm not in the top 120, you know, I I, I must suck. Um, and and if you're not, you probably do. But but there's really no hammer on the officials, and even even like the Big East supervisor, those guys work Big East games. And they work other conferences. So what are you going to do? Suspend them? They just go work somewhere else. You know they don't care, and uh, and like they care about their jobs. But if they're not employed, like these guys are independent contractors. If they're not employed, you know what what hammer do you have on them? 
they're going to call it, you know, essentially they're going to call it the way they want. And, and the, like, I don't want to make it seem like they're a bunch of rogues out there because they're not. Generally, they do a great job. But overall, uh, I think the officials have done a really poor job this year of enforcing the rules on the books. But and, that's, right, I look so, at it, I think there's a directive from somebody, and I, you explained the difficulty of it, but... Um, well, the directive, what I'm saying is direct, the directive isn't working. Yeah. So, so, and look. And know, what are they going to do if they don't follow the directive? I, you know, you right. can argue, you can argue it's really tough to change midstream that now we're in the middle of the season and we've established a mode of playing. How are we going to get this back? And we may not be able to get it. Um, I'm not confident we will. When you see it for, when you see it for this many games, like most teams have played, you know, in the neighborhood of 15, 16 games. And already, you would say even more. different from last year. Oh, it's way different. Okay. I mean, it's it's last year we had slippage. This year it's over. Like freedom of movement's dead right now. We're back to where we were five years ago, wow. where this was a huge problem. And you can see it scoring's down. But but Homer, the fact that foul calls are down, how's that possible? Come on, <laughs> that makes no sense. That, that's like saying, hey, boy, the coaches have done a great job of teaching defending without fouling. You know, when you're down like uh, to a, a historically low level of foul calls in today's game, that's absurd to suggest that 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 there's not a problem. Of course, there's a problem. All right, Jay. I always I want to talk to you, get information, and I always feel a little bit smarter. We've gone long, and I don't get your sixty seconds on the NCAA. But the next time we talk basketball, I'll ask. Looking forward to it, Homer. Thanks, brother. Always a treat. Thanks, Jay. Scalzo and Brust is next. No worries. Scalzo and Brust next.